You are listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about this show, as well as the other show I do, How to Stan, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com and subscribe to my newsletter at howtostan.substack.com. K-pop interviews, album reviews, and more. Subscribing is free, but if you want to continue to support my work, feel free to donate. Click the support the show button on the homepage at 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Hello everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop, and welcome to episode 2 in the RM's Rex series of episodes, talking about some of RM's many book recommendations from over the years. Today's theme is the books he has recommended about utopias of sorts, dystopias maybe, futuristic worlds. First up, we're going to talk about The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology by inventor Ray Kurzweil. RM mentioned that one in a 2018 VLive. He explicitly did say it does not relate to the song Singularity by BTS. He wanted to make it clear he's not making that connection. But it is very interesting nonetheless what this book says and its theories I don't agree with, but I find some nuggets of truth in and some interesting takeaways worth sitting with. Then we're going to talk about Walden by Henry David Thoreau, which is way more interesting if you read between the lines than it seems at first glance. Ara mentioned that book in a 2016 appearance on the show Close-Up Observation Diary on Idol. Direct translation there. And lastly, Walden 2, a spin-off of Walden by a different author about a fictional utopian society and its many shortcomings. It's a social commentary of sorts, and although RM hasn't specifically recommended that one, I think you'll quickly get the connections to his worldview that it has, and view of certain social commentary based on his other previous recommendations. Let's get into this by talking about The Singularity is Near. This is considered to be a nonfiction science book published in 2005. It's from author Ray Kurzweil, who also wrote The Age of Intelligent Machines and The Age of Spiritual Machines. In this new book, he goes off of what others have proposed, so it's not entirely an original concept. He especially cites this essay from 1993 by Werner Vinge called The Coming Technological Singularity. Several films that were inspired by his books have been made, whether you realized it or not, like Transcendent Man and The Singularity is Near, which is kind of viewed as both a sci-fi movie and some sort of documentary. Anyway, Kurzweil also goes off of views that started with John von Neumann in the 50s and I.J. Gold in the 60s and presumably many others. What his premise boils down to while some people think that artificial intelligence will surpass human intelligence someday, he doesn't view it like that, like some sort of eventual robot takeover. More of a robot immersion, where one day artificial and human intelligence will exist in the world in equal amounts, and then merge together, man and machine merging more than ever to form a social event he has dubbed the Great Singularity when our many forms of intelligence become one. And he says once that happens, the knowledge and intelligence that will just flow out of us into the world will be endless. An endless stream and acceleration of new intelligence. 
he references this thing called the law of accelerating returns, predicting this exponential rise in a bunch of different tech sectors over time. Keep in mind this book is from 2005, which is where the nuggets of truth come into his theories, in my opinion, about a tech takeover of sorts. He insists that when people point out your exponential rise prediction is just not happening. He just insists that any dips in what a graph would chart as exponential are just unavoidable dips and nothing to worry about and do not discount his theories. He views time and evolution as having six phases, and he says we are in stage four out of six. There was physics and chemistry, then we expanded our knowledge of biology, then brains on their own, and we are in stage four, which is technology. Stage five, a merger of human tech and human intelligence. And he titles six as the universe wakes up. Here are some of his many predictions that he made back in 2005. He said that by 2020, the capacity of circuits would slow, forcing the tech world to undergo a paradigm shift. I don't think he had a pandemic in mind as the cause of that shift, but there you go. He also predicted that by around 2020, the value of the amount of computer power equal to one brain would be like $1,000. He also predicts this singularity will start in 2045, when the value will be 1 billion times greater than the value of all human brains in today's world. He predicts that when the singularity happens, Everything we do and how we do it, play, work, live, even go to war, will be totally transformed. He says one day this will allow for humans to do all kinds of things, like age backwards, cure the human body from diseases itself. He describes a, quote, physical manifestation at will. He also insists there can be no such thing as life on other planets, because people would have discovered them by now. And he says he views humans as destined, prophesied to be the sole transmitters of intelligence into the universe. And aliens would screw up that plan. Critics take a ton of issues with what he's predicting. First of all, some view his constant use of end of times kind of language as this weird biblical use thing to do, this sacrilegious framing. They also criticize his exponential growth model as totally ignoring factors that limit resources. There are always resource constraints on growth. I think it was summed up best in a critique published by a neuroscientist, Davis J. Linden. Quote, Kurzweil is conflating biological data collection with biological insight. Meaning that data collection, sure, maybe that grows exponentially, but biological insight doesn't necessarily grow exponentially with it. Just because we may exponentially grow with technology, our capacity to quantify and analyze certain metrics does not mean that we also exponentially increase our knowledge of how and why those metrics are the way they are. People also cite a key example of exponential growth's shortcomings as being the man on the moon. Just because a big, supposedly world-altering event happens does not mean there's exponential acceleration of using that technology. We didn't have exponential growth of people going to the moon because of resource limitations that he does not take into account. Scientists also take issue with his view of humans as made up of patterns instead of molecules. 
and many scoff at his views of humans as someday being able to reverse engineer their biology. You can't just change the pattern. In view, this is not about molecular science. Overall, people think he's thinking in a very far-fetched and vague way, but often Kurzweil just says any dips in exponential growth on a graph or any flaws in his logic don't really matter. Because, for example, when he admits there is a, an eventual mathematical limit to computing power and its scientific value, he says, well, that limit to computing it will not be reached before the singularity happens, so it's irrelevant anyway. So when he does not have a counter-argument, he just kind of says, let's shrug it off, it doesn't matter. The most troubling aspect of his take to me is that he addresses the counter-argument of let's stop giving robots and next-level technology this much legitimacy and power in our lives. He says no need to worry about that because we'll just invest further in defensive technologies against them along the way. Really don't like the undertones there at the end, but let's move on to Walden. A weird transition, but I think you'll see the connections eventually. Walden was also called Life in the Woods, published by Henry David Thoreau in 1854. It actually only sold 2,000 copies in its first five years of publication, and it actually went out of print until he died in 1862, but then somehow it became a classic years down the road. This guy has a very weird writing style, full of metaphors and just weird framing of things. And so people, readers, take away different things from his work. Some view it more as a survival guide for life in the woods. Others view it as just a fictional story. Some view it as just scientific commentary about nature. Others consider it more of a diary of his. Others view it as a true recollection of his memories, a nonfiction diary. Others see it as satire, or at least social commentary, sarcasm. It is a lot. Basically what he did was, he kept a journal that turned into this book about the 26 months and two days he spent in a cabin near Concord, Massachusetts. But he does condense the book into one year, using the changing of the seasons as transition points in the story. He set off on this journey July 4th of 1845 to prove he could do it. He could rough it in the woods. The funniest thing that he didn't tell readers, it was a bit misleading because he actually roughed it out right outside of town. So throughout the two years when he was allegedly living totally off the grid and charting his many struggles and triumphs over them, he was also going into town all the time even so his mom could keep doing his laundry. Each chapter has a title based on the topic, so if you're curious about his writing style and what he says, I'll sum up each chapter for you in a few short words. Economy is basically a chapter that serves as a financial ledger of sorts and an overview to readers about what his plan is. Chapter 2 is called Where I Lived and What I Lived For, very dramatic. Chapter 3 is called Reading, where he condemns these quote-unquote uncultured people of Concord and longs for these old days where people loved deep reading and, he thought, used to be more educated. Chapter 4 is called Sounds, where he makes the case for finding joy in the mundane all around you instead of deciding to, quote, look abroad for amusement to society in the theater. 
Chapter 5 is called Solitude, where he contemplates solitude and how he can be lonely even when people are physically present if he does not connect with them. He recaps some of the visits he's had so far. Here's a fun deep cut for 17 Karat K-pop listeners to recall. Quote, memory runs back farther than mythology. Chapter 6 is called Visitors. 7, The Beanfield. 8, The Village, where he details the time he went into town and was detained because he criticized a poll tax to the, quote, state that buys and sells men, women, and children like cattle at the door of its Senate house. 9 is called The Ponds. 10, Baker Farm, where he recalls an afternoon where he got caught in a storm and a farmer gave him shelter. And while there, he tried to encourage this farmer to give up his dreams of living a more luxurious life and to appreciate his farming and to find joy in his simpler life. Chapter 11, Higher Laws. That's when he comes to this philosophical conclusion that people who resist the primal instinct to consume meat are superior. Quote, no human older than an adolescent would wantonly murder any creature which reveres its own life as much as the killer. Chapter 12 is called Brute Neighbors. He recalls a time he went fishing with this guy William, who seemed so out of it with his head in the clouds that he didn't really learn how to catch fish throughout the journey. So Thoreau's conclusion is that Thoreau himself is going to be better off in the long run and got more out of those trips, because instead of daydreaming, he focused on learning practical skills. Yet, that seems ironic. Didn't he just decide to go live in the woods to do what William was just doing? To bask in the beauty of nature? I don't know, I'm just saying. Chapter 13 is Housewarming. 14, Former Inhabitants and Winter Visitors. 15, Winter Animals. 16, The Pond in Winter. Chapter 17 is Spring. And Chapter 18 is Conclusion. Quote, If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. Remember that marching to the beat of your own drum quote for later. Basically, people didn't know if this guy is a reliable narrator or what. He was very wordy and confusing, kind of a poser. He applied metaphors weirdly and in contradictory ways. He's always chastising people who are not vegan or whatever and in other ways he views them as inferior to him, intellectually or impulse-wise. His ego is on full display when he discusses his beliefs. He's very sure of himself. A New Republic author's critique of Thoreau compares him to Dickens, kind of like a wannabe Dickens, who is trying to write in the form of some sort of persona, perhaps, on purpose, and it just is not landing. He's not landing this character convincingly. In his story, some critique the biblical imagery he uses and actually view it as he's describing things with biblical comparisons to make his words sound more like absolute, believable truths. Some people thought he just misrepresented his life because he was basically a squatter, spending those two years working with borrowed tools and sitting in a borrowed house and maybe taking some credit for borrowed ways of living. There's also a debate about how much he actually was from a poor family or how much, what does it mean to not be well off financially? 
A lot of environmental scientists actually adore him because throughout his prose and metaphor, he also interspersed his journals with scientific notes and observations about the traits of the pond and plants and stuff. And actually, some of that data is reliable and still used by environmentalists to this day in studies. So he did create a useful foundation of data. But there's this fun piece I will link to on my newsletter by an environmental journalist, Katherine Schultz, called Pond Scum, which views him as totally overhyped. There's this critic's column, Garrison Keeler says, quote, A sore head and a loner, whose clunky line about marching to your own drummer has found its way into a million graduation speeches. Thoreau tried to make a virtue out of lack of rhythm. He said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Okay, but how did he know? He didn't talk to that many people. He wrote elegantly about independence and forgot to thank his mom for doing his laundry. One critique by Benjamin Mangrum calls out how Thoreau seems to co-op language of economic and social justice. He uses this jargon to sound like he believes certain things, but he lives his life in a very different way and kind of undermines his own arguments in the process. I could go on and on, but people are very ticked off about this guy. Some are not. Some recognize certain things he did and said, like, quote, unjust laws exist. Shall we be content to obey them or shall we endeavor to amend them and obey them until we have succeeded or shall we transgress them at once? And he contemplated how to make a more equitable world. If he truly wanted to do that, one of the many matters up for debate. He did also acknowledge certain societal circumstances affecting who can do what, who can resist what social pressures or doesn't have to face any social pressures to conform. In one of his writings, he acknowledged that abolitionist neighbors of his feared retribution too much to publicly protest in certain ways. One writer, who wrote about him in a positive light, Elizabeth Witherell, said, quote, He was active in circulating petitions for neighbors in need. He was attentive to what was going on in the community. He was involved in the Underground Railroad, unquote. He also reportedly quit his job after refusing to engage in corporal punishment. His family has ties to the Concord Women's Anti-Slavery Society. Anthro often did criticize the Massachusetts extensive use of slave labor in the past. Here are some really potentially truly funny, potentially accidentally funny examples of lines that are very much thorough being thorough. Number one, you will pardon some obscurities, for there are more secrets in my trade than in most men's, and yet not voluntarily kept, but inseparable from its very nature. Yeah, what? I have more secrets than other people, but I don't want to keep more secrets. But it's just inseparable. That's just how people are. He also says things like, I will hint at some of the enterprises I have cherished. At any hour of the day or night, I have been anxious to improve the nick of time. And this one really gets me. A huckleberry never reaches Boston. Yeah. What? It's hard to tell with him when he's joking, when he's trying to sound really deep and giving you some sort of ancient proverb, or when he's just citing a fact. Huckleberries are sold in markets, so maybe he's suggesting a true huckleberry will never reach Boston because it will be some sterilized version. I don't know what he's getting at. 
he may be talking about how the natural world never really can be incorporated into modern cosmopolitan life that he scoffs at. It's always really hard to tell with him when he's truly trying to drive home a deep, impactful point, and when what he's saying is just nonsense. He, like, he could just be saying a bunch of words that mean nothing. And he does actually seem to make light of situations at weird times, too. He doesn't always sound so stuffy and astute. He makes some fart jokes. There are moments where I think, based on his language, he's alluding to peeing on stuff. So he has his juvenile moments. He's a very odd person. I do think he did have some redeemable qualities, though. Like his interesting views on transcendentalism, a really popular train of thought during the Romantic period. He said, quote, I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. E.B. White, I think, summarized his views in his inner conflict as such. Quote, Henry went forth to battle when he took to the woods, and Walden is the report of a man torn by two powerful and opposing drives. The desire to enjoy the world and the urge to set the world straight. He wants to influence the world, but also get away from it and go off the grid. Leave his handprints all over what he's doing and also claim no role in it. So he had this weird mix of emphasizing self-reliance, but he also writes about appreciating company when he had it. He did want the best of both worlds. Quote, I had three chairs in my house. One for solitude, two for friendship, three for society. When visitors came in larger and unexpected numbers, there was but the third chair for them all, but they generally economized the room by standing up. It is surprising how many great men and women a small house will contain. I have had 25 or 30 souls with their bodies at once under my roof, and yet we often parted without being aware that we had come very near to one another. Again, quite a thoroughism where it sounds like it could be very profound or utter rambling nonsense. He definitely comes across as trying hard. We'll go back to the deeper meaning more in a minute, but let's now summarize Walden II, a book by a different author published in 1945. This is a novel by behavioral psychologist B.F. Skinner, which actually back then it could have been labeled science fiction since it was talking about science-based ways to change human behavior. Now that's just called applied behavioral analysis, but in the 1940s that was non-existent. The book basically seems to rest on the thesis that human behavior is solely nurture, not nature, solely about environmental and external factors. So this utopia of sorts is called Walden II, where about a thousand people live as a group. And any community solution to a problem is not implemented until proof of it being effective can be shown. So they meticulously have cultivated an environment explicitly meant to be a utopia. Walden 2 is a location in the book where this quote-unquote behavioral engineering starts at birth and focuses on training the brains of its citizens to avoid competition and embrace a sense of community. So they reprogram their brains to try to strive for a communal identity above all else and always try to make the society better. So they don't have individual parenting at all in Walden 2. They have a non-nuclear family. They all just kind of parent each other. 
money is replaced by a point system. So for your job, you get paid in points. And it has nothing to do with your ability to live. Free access to food and a place to sleep is available to everyone regardless. Everyone works about four hours a day. And every single day, you can change work locations if you want to. You can change things up every day and are meant to have a lot of free time as well. There is not really a governing body, but there are community organizers called the planners who run the show. They don't have any power to punish people, but still. Seems a little hypocritical that they're talking about a utopia without any leader controlling anyone else, and they do have the planners. Anyway, there are these community supervisors as well who are appointed to enforce the Walden Code. But they don't really have enforcement mechanisms because they're not in a real official position in a hierarchy or a government. So basically through intimidation and coaxing, they can try to get people to comply. And ironically, this society claims to be non-hierarchical. But it actually is four classes of people. There are the planners, six of them who are responsible for the community's policies and its success, its programs it implements to be the best place possible. They have specific office titles, but they're not disclosed to the public, and the roles are not meant to be public because that might provoke the feelings they are programming themselves to get rid of, like a sense of competitiveness, wanting to one-up each other. So you've got the planners, then there are the managers, one for each labor sector. Again, more lack of transparency about how they're appointed. They don't disclose that process. Again, under the guise of not wanting to make people have these feelings of jealousy that are viewed as toxic to a society. Then there are your common folk, the workers, and the scientists. Very little is known about the scientists as well and what they are up to all day. Walden too has a constitution, and it can be altered, but only if the planners vote unanimously in favor of the change, and then two-thirds of the managers also vote unanimously in favor of the change. The main characters who tour this utopia are Professor Burris, Frazier, who started this utopia and is super cocky and full of himself for starting it, and Professor Castle, an ethics teacher, naturally, who ends up going to visit with Frazier and Burris. Two of them become permanent members of Walden too. And then Castle starts to think, this is all a sham. He starts seeing Frazier in a different light, more like a cult leader than anything, a dictator in disguise. He eventually confronts Frazier about this, and is starting to get alarmed because copycats are being built. For example, Walden 6. Castle decides to stick around, though, because he wants to keep an eye on Frazier, because the confrontation did not do anything to put his mind at ease. They decide to leave after their several-day stay, except for Castle. But on the ride back to their university, Burris is struck by a very out-of-the-blue desire to suddenly 100% embrace the Walden 2 lifestyle he had just witnessed. So he leaves. He turns back around, walks back on foot to Walden 2 and also becomes a member of the society. Interesting distinction here, this premise is summarized as Walden with company. Thoreau's lifestyle with less loneliness. But there are more differences I see. Walden too is not about self-reliance as much, it's about community reliance. And Walden too has a different conclusion about how much your environment is responsible for your behavior. They view it as overt, change the outer environment, and you change the people in it. 
Thoreau wrote about it in a more complex way. He didn't think it was that simple. Fun fact, there was this follow-up essay to this story called News From Nowhere in 1984. And in the essay, a character meets Burris and reveals to him he's George Orwell. How's that for a plot twist? So why do I think RM and BTS overall might have been inspired by the world of Walden, might have been prompted to think and reflect on the bigger, broader messages in Thoreau's work? It's because BTS's story has focused a lot on the same broad themes. Looking inward for solace, critique of materialism, critiquing focusing too much on looking to external solutions to solve your internal problems, solitude and its shortcomings, the importance of community, the way nature can teach lessons about the human experience, the way quote-unquote modern societies fall short at teaching some of the core concepts you should know for life, the importance of reconnecting with the natural world. Those are things RM lives by, and BTS addresses, sometimes subtly, sometimes more overtly, in their music video universe. This story also definitely brought to mind Omelas, the short story overtly referenced in parts of BTS's story. Check out BT Study Guide Episode 2 for that recap, but these books about perceived utopias still have their flaws, and aren't really a utopia. There's no such thing as this perfect, conflict-free, peaceful, all-the-time society. And we have to learn to live with each other, which cannot be easy no matter how hard we try to make it so. And both Walden and Omelas bring up some really interesting questions about what is considered a dichotomy or not. Can you really have a society built on equality and a lack of competition when you still have a skeleton version of a governing body and a hierarchy? That lack of transparency of the people in charge is viewed as actually helping keep the peace. But what if that stirs up more condemnation? How do you balance transparency in a society with privacy or divvying up roles in letting individuals feel valuable with the need to put community needs first. Those balancing act questions about self-reliance versus community reliance, praise of modern technology and where it's headed versus healthy skepticism about it and stopping to think about what's being lost as the technology develops, those are all moral questions these stories provoke. There are some thorough quotes that really bring to mind BTS's story, and you will definitely see how without further explanation if you've been following the BT Study Guides episodes. Number one, quote, When the play, and maybe the tragedy of life, is over, the spectator goes his way. It was a kind of fiction, a work of the imagination only, so far as he was concerned. Number two, keep in mind all of the references to the limits of language to truly do justice to the human experience. How much the precise meaning and impact of word choice really matters, and what authority words have over a situation. Third thing, quote, So thoroughly and sincerely we are compelled to live, reverencing our life, and denying the possibility of change. This is the only way, we say, but there are as many ways as there can be drawn radii from one center. Quotes about expanding your horizons, super applicable. Also, when he tries to redefine necessary and contingent, 
reevaluating how we have structured our inner and outer worlds and the limits on changing the paths we have chosen already to go down. In a magazine interview, RM called J-Hope the Kant of our company, presumably referencing Immanuel Kant. And it's interesting because Thoreau took Kant's views on conceptualizing what is necessary in life and ran with them. He was very influenced by Kant. He kept bringing home the point in his writing that people need to reconceptualize necessity for this new era. Kant specified that necessity refers to, quote, the existence which is given through possibility itself and the existence of an object at all times, whereas contingent is everything else in the world. What's necessary is just that which is given an existence through its sheer possibility of happening. That philosophy drove Thoreau's work, and interestingly apparently drives J-Hope, as Aram nicknamed him the Kant of the company, trying to figure out what's necessary. And the point in spending time hashing out what is necessary versus contingent is that it alters the entire framework of a conversation about whether or not moral agency is a thing. Your view of intuition is shaped by what philosophers see humans as capable of doing of their own volition. And also, the existence of these categories on their own implies that humans do inherently have capacity to rationally and autonomously think. And how do you autonomously think without rubbing heads with individuals who also can do that? That is a fundamental predicament in stories about utopias. How we can all learn to get along together. I will leave you in thought about all of this for now. We'll pick up this conversation where we left off and then some, with some very different stories on RM's Rex. That's all I'll say for now. Thank you all as always for tuning in, and, and I will talk to you all again very, very soon.